Welcome to the sermon podcast of Christ Church Medicine, the community coming home to Jesus and His Church. For more information about us, visit ChristChurchMedicine.com. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we have come, we've begun to worship the name of your son Jesus and his presence. Lord, we pray that the presence of the Holy Spirit would help us now to understand the teaching of the Bible. And to not only understand, but to even take the risk of believing and trusting in it and letting the Scripture change us with the voice of God. And we pray that now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so you all can be seated. Uh, this summer, I, I have more space and time in the summer to think and to pray and to read, and I find that I get interested in different themes um, from Scripture when I get some space and time. And one that I got really interested in this summer was the question of the provision of God and had a desire to sort of work out in the Scriptures what is a kind of theology of God's provision. It had been a very sort of lived experience for Catherine and me where we have seen over uh, our 27 years of marriage and just about the same years of ministry together, God provide over and over again. So I thought, okay, I want to take this out of just the realm of, wow, I've seen God do this, to who is God as our provider, and how do we understand the provision of God biblically and theologically? So that led me into a few different thoughts. One, into what happens when the people of God in Israel, the church, don't receive the provision of God? What if God's actually providing for us in so many ways and yet we're not in a position or in an understanding to actually receive what He's giving us. And so I want to work with you this morning out of 1 Corinthians 10. That's there in your bulletin. If you have your Bible with you, you can open up to 1 Corinthians 10. I want to look at that passage together. Before I do that, though, I want to start with a story that forms a kind of picture for what I want to teach on. It was many, many years ago, a Christmas morning. I was at my mom's house. I was 20 years old. My mom had a, just a beautiful house, and she was just a beautiful kind of Christmas hostess, and I was back from college, and she had just made a special morning. All of our family traditions were a part of it. And one of our family traditions is that everyone would get one larger gift, and even at the age of 20, I was excited about the larger gift and what that would be, and my larger gift actually was larger that year. It was physically larger, and it was wrapped up under the tree, and my turn came to open my gift. And so I opened it up with excitement, anticipation, and it was um, luggage. Now, I'm 20 years old. I don't know what I was expecting. I mean, did I want a baseball mitt? I, I mean, maybe. I, did, did, I, did I want Playmobil? Maybe. I don't know. I, I didn't know what I wanted. But when I opened that gift and I had that moment where you kind of stand on the precipice, you know, you know the, the precipice of present opening, where you haven't quite picked it out yet. And I don't know if you have anxiety around that, but I do. Um, and you want to impress and you want to be pleasing, but at the same time, you, you, yeah, that's not what I wanted. And I just kind of had a, eh. I mean, I was, I'm a Midwesterner. I was very polite. And thank you, Mom. But inside, I was, eh. Luggage? Really? Not quite. That was kind of my reaction. Not quite. Not quite what I wanted. Not quite for Christmas. 
my poor, long-suffering mom. I, by the way, still use that luggage. It's incredible luggage. It was a very generous gift, but that's not how I felt that morning. It wasn't quite right. And I think we live a lot of our life with that temptation. Eh, not quite. Especially for us um, in unprecedented affluence compared to the rest of history and much of the global experience, we have much of what we need. Not everyone, not always, but we have much of what we need. But is it what we wanted? Is it, or is it, eh? We see the people of God in Israel and the church in this passage in 1 Corinthians 10 in a very similar, eh, not quite enough, not quite what I wanted to open on Christmas morning, Lord. And I, after my luggage debacle, can see myself so clearly, my own sin nature and their sin nature. So let's work through this really fascinating passage together in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I'm going to assume that some of you are, have never read this before. I'm going to assume that some of you are brand new to studying and learning the Bible, and that others of you have read it before, and I'm going to assume that hardly any of us really know what this is about, because this is a really fascinating and complex passage. But anybody, whether you're new to the Bible or experienced in the Bible, you can get there. You can understand this. So it does mean that we're going to do a little bit of work together on this. This is a kind of Bible geek passage, and we are going to geek out some, but not so much that we actually lose the through line of thought that the writer, who is uh, Paul, has for us here. Break this passage into two main parts, okay? The first would be verses 1 to 11, which is our temptation of the, eh, not quite. Okay, the temptation, verses 1 to 11. The second part is our escape from temptation, verses 12 to 14. Look at verse 10, excuse me, chapter 10, verse 1. For I did not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our, our fathers... We're all under the cloud. They all passed through the sea. They were baptizing the Moses in the cloud of the sea, and they all ate the same spiritual food and drank the spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, the rock that was Messiah, the rock that was Christ. Okay, let's, okay, here we go. All right, so what we're going to see here in these first verses is that the not-quite temptation is true for Israel. Israel was under a not-quite temptation. First of all, let's start with this. Our fathers, Jewish. Paul himself is Jewish. He's part of a Jewish group of leaders who have come to know Jesus, the Jewish man, to be the Messiah they've been waiting for, who is the Son of God, fully God, fully man. They've come to believe this unbelievable reality. And they're coming out of this deep and rich Israelite Jewish heritage. He is saying to those who are not Jewish, our fathers, your fathers. He's connecting these new believers in Jesus to a heritage in their Israelite Jewish heritage. And he's saying there's continuity with those who have gone before you, even though you're Gentile. What he wants to say is, as I talk about the Israelites, and I talk about Israel, I don't want you to think us, them. And I don't want you to think, oh, them, those Israelites, they're always getting into trouble. And if you're at all a reader of a Bible, it's like, oh, the Israelites, there they go again, stiff-necked people doing the wrong thing. And it says, if Paul knows and telegraphs, this is where we might go, because we're vulnerable to us and them no matter what it is, whether it's Israelite, Gentile, or, 
what it, racial realities, gender realities, we're always, it's always us, them for us. It's, it's part of our sinful nature to go us, them. Paul's saying, no, 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 they're our fathers. So as you hear about our fathers and our mothers, see your own self in it, Corinth, Gentiles, because actually what happened in Israel, he's going to make a comparison here in verses sort of 6 through 11, it's happening here in Corinth. And we can be assured that what was happening in Israel 3,000 plus years ago, what was happening in Corinth 2,000 years ago is happening at Christ Church Madison today. As a matter of fact, that's one of Paul's points. Look at verse 6 with me. These things took place, he's saying to Corinth about Israel, he's saying to Madison about Corinth, as examples for us. He's basically teaching you how to read the Bible. He's saying that the Bible, while it is historical and needs to be understood in its historical context, and while there's a place for scholarship in Scripture to understand these things, he's saying that the Bible is here to teach you by giving you examples of how to live your life in love of God and in the faith of God. And in this case, you have a continuity. You have our fathers. It also says you're connected to the gift of Israel. You're connected to the fact that God chose a particular people to pour out his love on them, that they might show the love of God to others. He's saying that now to those who are followers of Jesus. God has chosen you as he's chosen Israel, for he chose Jesus. And in his particularity and exclusivity, there's actually a complete miracle that he wants to reach as many as possible through a very specific reality. Israel, Jesus, those who are followers of Jesus. You are part of this. Yes, there's distinction, Jew and Gentile, but there's a unity with distinction. He's also saying, we are as vulnerable as Israel. Take place as examples for us, verse 6, that we might not desire evil as they did. And look at verse 11 as well. Now these things happened to them as example, but they were written down for our instruction. So we have a vulnerability that we share. We share a gift with Israel, and we share a vulnerability with Israel. The Bible teaches us how to live today. You must be careful, especially if you are interested in the scholarship of the Scriptures. And we need Bible scholars. We need folks who have gone deeply into theology and Bible. But we must be clear that you should never let that gaining knowledge keep you from reading your Bible to teach you how to live your life. That's Paul's assumption. As this took place as examples for us. Okay, more about our Israelite fathers. We read from Exodus uh, 16. And so what we see is that actually Paul is not giving, he says, do not be idolatrous, verse 7, as some of them were. Do not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did. Then verse 9, do not put Christ to the test, as some of them did. Verse 10, do not grumble, as some of them did. He's giving four different examples of what happened among the people of Israel. And he's connecting it with the people in Corinth. We see this in Exodus 16. You guys have that in your bulletin as well. You can flip over there with me. He's saying, here's what's going on for Israel. Look at verse 3. They've, they have been released from 400 years of slavery under a Middle Eastern ruler, an Egyptian ruler, Pharaoh. They've been released from that. They got out free from that miraculously. They're brought through the parting of the Red Sea. And what's happening now that they're in the place of, of, of desert, they're moving toward the promise that God has given them, of giving them a land. They are now missing their time in Egypt. And they say this, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. They were under true, complete chattel slavery, an intense kind of slavery. And yet, 
they actually miss that and want to go back to that, and it's sort of symbolized for them in the meat pots. Now, I have to say, as somebody who loves food, I would love to know what an Egyptian meat pot is, because just hearing that they were so enticed by that, I mean, I don't know. I mean, it, it, they're probably selling at the farmer's market with the, you know, you know farm-raised beef and perfect Wisconsin organic cheese, right? They probably have Egyptian meat pots, because they're so good. It's like you feel about whatever you feel about that you love to eat. You Madisonians with your Epicurean delights, <laughs> Right? The meat pots, I mean, they must have been, I mean, I mean the, the, the mixture of flavors must have been unbelievable. The way that the leeks were just perfectly sautéed and added into the meat pot. Oh, that meat pot. I mean, you're texting all of your friends. You're all over, like, you've got to go to the meat pot shop. This meat pot shop, it's the best. And in fact, it's so good. It was so powerful. You'd always rather have the perfect meat pot. And that ideal is so powerful. You'd always rather go back to slavery for that ideal. That the human heart and mind is so drawn to the ideal, and to the idealized food, or the idealized woman, or the idealized man, or the idealized church, or the idealized school, or the idealized president. We're so drawn to that, we'd actually go back into that, which is actually slavery, rather than have the freedom that God is giving us. That's the Israelite heart. That's the Corinthian heart. That's our heart. Paul's diagnosing this. He's saying there's a temptation of, yeah. God's meat pot, it's okay. Yeah. Not quite. Not quite like the Egyptian meat pot. Verse 12 then in Exodus 16. I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Look, don't just hear a stern, shaking finger father. Hear a father in heaven who says, so say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat. You're hungry for meat. I actually love you so much, I'm going to give you meat. And in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord who provides for you. It is of my very intrinsic nature. One of the phrases, Yahweh Yaira. The God who sees, the God who provides. I see your hunger for the meat pot, and I'll actually give you meat. I see your hunger for bread. I will actually give you bread. That's the kind of God I am. They think he's the kind of God that holds back. They think he's the kind of God that provides, but not quite right. Like my mom giving me luggage. That's the kind of God they think that they have. But God said, no, 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 I see. I will provide. And what begins to set up is a dynamic and a tension. Who is God really? And how he expresses himself <clears throat> And shows himself in his provision. And who we think God is. <clears throat> who does Corinth think God is? Who does Israel think God is? I'll just read this to you. This <clears throat> is from Numbers 21, 5. This refers to that section in uh, chapter 10 about uh, grumbling and complaining. Numbers 21, 5. And the people spoke against God and against Moses, and they said, Why be brought out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? So we're still complaining about being brought out of Egypt, dying in the wilderness, for there is no food and water, and we loathe this worthless food. Now, they've got food. They've got water. It's what? <laughs> Not quite. What Paul is saying, <clears throat> this is incredible. Go back to first. Thanks. Um, what Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians 10 is the Israelites, they had baptism. They had 
Hebrew sacraments, if you will. They had baptism. Their baptism was going through the Red Sea. Our, our baptism happens in a different way in the fulfillment of Jesus, the Messiah. But they had baptism. He's even saying they had Holy Communion. They were, they were being fed by God, by His presence and as His power. They had Holy Communion. They had baptism. They had the words of God. God was speaking to them. God was teaching them. He's saying they had everything. They had salvation. They were saved from slavery. They were given a promised land. They had everything that they needed, and yet it wasn't quite enough. And now he says, look at verse 6, this is true for us as well, that we may not desire evil as they did. We know that in Corinth, they had an obsession with the supernatural. Now, all Christians are supernaturalists. If you become a follower of Jesus and you believe in the revealed word of God, which some of you, I'm, I'm guessing, are in a process, you may not be there yet. Once you become a follower of Jesus, you are a supernaturalist. You believe in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. But what happened in Corinth was more than just that. They were picking certain supernatural realities and they were obsessed with them as the ideal. If you're an ideal follower of Jesus, they, for example, said you will always interact with the gift of tongues. Tongues was simply... It's simply a spiritual gift that has to do with connecting with God personally. It's using language that isn't always sensical, nonsensical to the ear, sensical to God. That's a whole other teaching, but that's, it's called the gift of tongues. It is a real, it's a real gift. It's a biblical gift. But Corinth was, was obsessed with tongues. That's the ideal. That's the true spiritual person. And they had this background with this. So essentially what Paul is saying is, okay, Israel had their ideal in the meat pot. Israel had their ideal in the Egyptian culture they were a part of. You have an ideal. It's a different ideal, but your ideal is in tongues. Or your ideal is in other certain things. And he's saying, in the same way that Eucharist and baptism wasn't enough for Israel, you have the same thing. You have the Eucharist. You have baptism. You have the Word of God. And it's not enough for you either. So just like Israel, Corinth has fallen into the temptation of not quite. He said, you have everything you need in Jesus. But for you in Corinth, mm, no, not the ideal. Where does this lead? Where does this lead? Where does the temptation not quite lead? He actually says that what's happening for Corinth now is that they're desiring evil. Okay, now that's one of those phrases where as you're learning to read your Bible and you read the phrase desire evil, you probably have a reaction to that. If you're tracking with you, you're like, that seems like he just went from, I don't know, five on a scale of one to ten volume to ten. He was talking, now he's screaming. And I don't like it when people scream. Why desire evil? I mean, come on, Paul. I mean, desiring evil because they're idealizing people who have the gift of tongues and they want all their leaders to be like that. Why would he go so strong on the question of desiring evil. What's really happening here? How about this? we got some pretty serious sins here, starting with verse 7. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. By the way, rose up to play is a phrase that does not have to do with tennis. It has to do with sexual immorality. Play is actually they were engaging in, in, in illicit, immoral sexual relationships. So we have illicit, immoral sexual relationships. Then we have it again, verse Eight. Then we have putting Messiah Christ to the test, verse 9. And then we have grumbling. Really? I mean, sexual immorality, grumbling? I mean, isn't one kind of a varsity sin and one a junior varsity sin, according to Paul? 
I mean, really, grumbling's in the same list as putting God to the test and orgy? What's happening here? Why is grumbling in there? Why is complaining in there? Why was it there in the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament Scriptures, why was it there when we hear about grumbling in Numbers, we hear about grumbling in Exodus, and why is it here? Why is Paul bringing it up again? Is it because he's a pastor, he's just tired of people complaining? I think there's more. Maybe it's here because of this. The grumbling or complaining occurs when there's an ideal in our life that's not being met. When we have some ideal some ideal that's driving us, and it could be an ideal that manifests in a lot of different ways. And the grumbling or complaining is the key symptom to say, I'm in a place where I feel like I am not being provided for. I'm in a place where I feel like I am not receiving what I need. And my grumbling and complaining are coming out of my heart, from my mouth, as an indicator that there's something in me that doesn't think God sees. I'm not sure Yahweh Yaira is Yahweh Yaira, the God who sees, the God who provides. That, that phrase means the same thing. The God who sees, the God who provides is, is the same. I'm not, I'm not sure. And the temptation of the, eh, it actually become a habit or a pattern or a life of the, eh, not quite. Not quite, honey. Not quite, son or daughter. Not quite, God. Not quite, coworkers. There's an ideal that's being fed, and an ideal in our lives can become an idol in our lives. And Paul is trying to explicate that for us, which is why he concludes this section in verse 14, flee from idolatry, because he understands that there was an ideal Israel had, Egyptian meat pot. There's an ideal that Corinth has, speaking in tongues. There's an ideal that we have, and that ideal is becoming an idol. It's actually taking up significant soul real estate. An idol, when an ideal goes into an idol, it doesn't have to always go that direction, by the way, but it certainly has vulnerability to go that direction, that when an ideal becomes an idol, an idol creates an evil desire for something greater than Jesus who Paul says is the rock, verse 4. That actually the idol becomes our security, the ideal becomes our security, rather than rock, foundation, secure reality, which is why he calls Jesus the rock in part at that point. So the question that has to be asked, not just of Israel or Corinth, but of us, is what is the ideal that is gripping you, that is holding you, what is the ideal that is creating complaining in you? So it'd be really helpful to know, have you complained at all in the last week? And if so, as you're able to ask that question and reflect, why did you complain about that? And it doesn't just count if you said it out loud. Did you complain internally? So there's an ideal that you have for ideal children. So actually the truth is you complain about your kids a lot, internally or externally. This isn't to say that children are not to be called to a way of living their lives, that children are not to be called to maturity, 
that the children are not to be called to a greater standard of living in the gospel and living lives of character. That is, that is an absolute biblical reality. But has that been taken over by an ideal? We can't raise perfect children. We raise children who can love, according to the gospel. But are we trying to raise perfect children? And that is feeding a complaining reality for us. How about the ideal spouse? And this is true whether you are single, celibate, or whether you are married. Believe me, one thing you guys all have in common with you're married or single is you're all idealizing that spouse, either the one you're living with who isn't the ideal, the one that you would like to live with. Is there an ideal lifestyle that you have set for yourself? And man, do you have material to work with in Madison, Wisconsin. This is a beautiful city. It's almost like your city planners had an ideal in mind. That'd be hard for me if I lived here. I live in the western suburbs of Chicago. It isn't as hard. I have other ideals. I'm just tormented I don't live in Door County. That's my ideal. Okay. But isn't an ideal lifestyle? That Egyptian meat pot, oh, if I only had that, I'd give up anything for that. So I was praying through this text, and, and I was just praying and asking the Lord to help me understand what happens for us. I got a really interesting sort of image in, my, in prayer as I prayed through this text, and it was this. In our tradition, in Anglican tradition, when someone's baptized, they're given a candle. Baptism, for example, and we have our candle. We've been baptized. We have what Paul said. We've been given the gift of baptism, for example, and we have our candle. This is figurative. We have our candle. When, the, when you're given a candle and you're baptized, it's lit, which is to say, I now have the fullness of the light of Jesus. And that light shines in my own heart and my dark, sinful nature, and that light shines into the world. But my image was that many of us have candles, but they're not lit. And we look at our candle, we look at our baptism, we look at the gift of God's salvation, and we go, not quite enough. Just a little candle against my own nature, against, against the confusion of life. And they were thinking, no, that's just not enough. What God has given me in Jesus and salvation and Holy Communion and Scripture, it's just, it's not enough. What the Lord wants to do, I think, as we understand Israel and Corinth's temptation on our own, is to light our candle again with His presence, which is to say this, how do we escape the temptation of the not quite? Verse 12, therefore, so we're shifting gears now to the point to, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Okay, Paul is saying this. This teaching he is saying is for any follower of Jesus if you're a mature follower of Jesus, and you've been following Jesus for a long time, he wants to be really clear. Do not think you're too mature for this. Do not think you're too established for this. Do not think you're too committed for this to happen to you. He is saying this complaining for an ideal that can become an idol is so pervasive and so powerful, Paul is saying, that it will plague every single follower of Jesus. Do not think for a moment that you can stand unless you therefore will fall. What, what do you do then? How, how do you live your life as a follower of Jesus if you're thinking that you're standing and you can't stand? You get on your knees. 
you find that the place that you live as a follower of Jesus is on your knees. You're not standing. You're not falling. You're right there with the Lord. You're right here in this posture. I can't stand, Lord, lest I fall. I'm right here, Lord. Oh, Lord, may I not fall. Oh, Lord, may I not give in to complaining and idols and idealizations. May I not desire the meat pot of Egypt more than the meat you provide from heaven. Lord, I admit I am constantly tempted by the not quite. But this happened to me in the last year. I didn't even realize an ideal that I've been feeding for years. I've been feeding it with scraps, right, from my own mental, imaginative table, just feeding it over the years. I had an ideal of a certain thing. Certainly I wanted something to happen, certain expectations that I had. And then that actually some of those things actually came to be and they came to fruition, but it wasn't quite what I wanted. And I walked away from this amazing gift of God that I received in a moment, and I was petulant. I was childish. That wasn't quite the way I wanted it to happen, Lord. I've been waiting for that. I wanted it to happen a certain way, and it didn't happen in that way. It took me months to realize it. I thought I was justified in my, eh. Now it seems ugly as I talk about it to you, but it seemed totally justified in the moment. And for months it seemed justified. So how do we get out? What's the way of escape? This is the good news. And Paul never will diagnose our condition like he can so powerfully without promising us that there is an antidote and there's a way out of our condition. He will never, ever leave us there. Neither will Peter, neither will John, neither will the Lord Jesus, neither will the scriptures that throughout the, the Old Testament scriptures. He says, listen, this is common to all of us. God is faithful, verse 13. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but the temptation he will also provide the way of escape. What is he saying? If you read that verse out of context, it actually isn't that helpful because you're like, okay, great, but how, like, what's the way of escape? I don't even, it's, it's abstract, it's abstract without it. But within the context that we've just been taught, he's been talking to us about the ways of escape. They're what God has provided. What are your ways? You, you don't have just one way out of prison. You have several ways out of prison. You can break out of prison in four or five different ways that Paul is saying. What are these ways? Well, your salvation in Jesus is your way out. Your baptism in Jesus that captures concretely your salvation in Jesus, that's a way out that Jesus found you. He saw you. He provided for you his love. He provided for you his power. He provided for you all that you need to get out. And you have to go back and just say, oh, I hold that candle. I've got that candle. No one can take the candle of my salvation from me. Light it again, Lord. What else has he given you? He's given you Holy Communion. Like he fed the Israelites with his food because he knows you're hungry. He'll feed you here. He's not saying, I know you're hungry, but I won't feed you. Do you realize that, that we, many of us who come from an evangelical background, our imaginations are so starved for the presence of God and the symbols of God that everything else we were trying to feed ourselves with, it never felt like it was quite enough because we haven't known the fullness of Holy Communion which God has given to his people. It's right here for us. It doesn't mean you'll feel anything when you take it. You don't have to feel anything. It's greater than that. It's more powerful than that. It's the presence of the Lord. And you have that as a way out, as a way of saying, okay, Lord, you have provided enough. You have the scriptures that have been given to us as an example of how to live our lives. It's an implied way of escape that Paul is promising to Corinth and promising to us. You have Jesus the rock. God is faithful. Jesus will be your way out. He is the rock. And it's to Jesus that we flee. 
It's one thing to have a way of escape. But many can escape and they get caught again. When you escape, you have to know where you're going. You have to know to whom you flee. And what Paul is saying, not only can you get out by baptism and Eucharist in the Scriptures, you're going to Jesus. You're fleeing to Him. And it is Him that all your ideals will be met. It is in Him that the real estate that idolatry has been taking up can be repented of and confessed, and He will be embraced. He is your rock. He is your security. What are you saying? Oh, Jesus and all that he means in his word and at his table and in salvation, he's enough. He's enough. That's what we believe. He sees. He knows I'm hungry. He knows I'm hurting. He knows I'm complaining. He knows my spouse is not all that I need and can never be and never will be. He knows that the single celibate life has a constant ache. Okay. So you can repent today if you've been grumbling or complaining. You can even renounce, which is even a kind of next step of spiritual intensity. You can renounce the power of an ideal that either is becoming an idol or has become an idol. It's taking over your thinking. You can renounce that. If you've not yet come to Jesus, you're exploring Jesus, let me assure you, he is the rock that will be the place of security in your life. Let's just be quiet before the Lord for a moment. And then I'll lead us in the prayer of confession. We'll just be quiet for just a minute or two. Just to, I've been talking at times quite loudly. So let me give you some quiet. And then we'll say the confession together.